We're going to read from Mark. Chapter 8, starting at 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here today will not taste death, before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Morning, everyone. My name's Jared. Uh, I sound a little different to normal, um, but I feel the same. <laughs> so um, it's great to be here. I'm the pastor here. Lovely to see you. Some familiar faces. It's great. Um, please join me as we pray. Father in heaven, we come before you uh, with praise and thanksgiving. You are the good and glorious God. You have given us your word. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, understand it this morning. As Joe prayed earlier, Lord, give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you're saying to us. Help us, Lord, to be attentive uh, to what you have to say, Lord Jesus. And please um, help us to not only hear these words, but to live them out. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. This morning, I'd like us to start by thinking about what, what, what does a king look like? Uh, what, is, what, do you, what comes to your mind when you think of the idea of a king? Uh, what, what did you say, Owen? Gold, gold, lots of gold. There we go. Throw out some ideas. What do we have? 
a king. What 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 do we have? A crown? Yes. Other ideas? Servants. Servants? Okay. Yeah. Um, Michael Jackson. Yeah. There we go. The king of pop. Um, yeah. So there's there's a few different ideas of what what it looks like to be a king. Usually some kind of wealthy, powerful, strong, mighty sort of person is what we have in mind. Now, I want to think about something similar. Uh, what does it look like to be victorious? What does it look like to win, to, to, to be victorious, to have a victory? Thoughts? On a podium, yeah. Celebration. Did you say popping the champagne? <laughs> oh, pomp and ceremony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe for some of us, it's like winning Bathurst or winning the World Cup or something like that comes to mind. Um, so, that's, yeah, so there are different ideas of victory. Um, lots of acclaim and, 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 and ruling and that kind of idea. And then also I want us to think about what, what does a good life look like? What does a truly fulfilling life look like? Um, you, you don't have to shout that out if you, if you, if you don't want to, <laughs> like money or something like that. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and so uh, today we're going to be having a look at some of those things. We're going to be seeing uh, how Jesus is the promised king. We're going to be seeing how Jesus is victorious. And we're going to see what, what Jesus says the good life is. But we're going to see that those things aren't really what the disciples thought they would be. Um, and so... We are halfway through Mark's gospel. Well done, everybody. Um, we, we, we've made it. And um, we're at the climax of what we've read so far. It's been building. And, um, and we're at the point where the disciples finally get in today's passage what Mark told us right at the beginning, that Jesus is the Christ, the promised king. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to spend uh, this morning in Mark, but over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do some some different things. We're going to look at Christmas um, for the carols and then there's a service in between the carols and then there's Christmas Day. And so we'll do Christmas for a bit and then we'll come back into Mark as well. But it, it's a neat uh, section because we're, we're kind of halfway through. This has been building to this massive section on who is Jesus. And so uh, we'll, we'll be coming back to Mark after we've done a few Christmas sermons as well. And we, we begin with Jesus uh, in Bethsaida. So he, he arrives in Bethsaida and um, some people bring to him a blind man and they beg him to touch him. And now that's, that's very similar to what happened uh, last week where he was going and they brought a man who was deaf and, and mute to him. And so we see that Jesus then heals this guy, but he does it in two stages. And I want us to keep that in mind thinking, why? Why does Jesus do it in two stages? Let's have a look at how he does this. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So the first step is Jesus spits on his eyes and lays his hands on him, um, which, you know, some people might find a bit gross, but th- but it's important. Um, and that's, that's how, how he does this first stage of the healing. Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So he, he has been given some sight, but not full sight yet. And so he, he, can, he can see things, you know, like this guy was blind. Um, it, and I think sometimes we can, we can miss the significance of what's going on here. This guy couldn't see anything. And now he can see some things, which is amazing. Um, he sees people, but they look like trees walking. So, you know, he might be scanning around and he sees 
some trees that are standing still and some trees that are moving around. Um, and those must be the people. So he can see, but not, not clearly. Then what happens? Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So that's stage two. Jesus puts his hands on his eyes again, and he opens his eyes, and he can see everything clearly. So no longer do people look like trees walking around, but people look like people. Trees look like trees. Um, birds look like birds. Plants look like plants. It's working. Um, and he can see, which is, uh, again, an awesome miracle. Uh, no one else but God does this. We see in the Old Testament, God says, uh, who, who, who makes the blind see? Is it not I, the Lord? And so here we have Jesus once again uh, bringing, doing something that only God does, restoring sight to the blind. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So he's still saying, keep it quiet. Um, his time had not yet come. So not, not to go blabbing about this, this right now. So Jesus had restored sight to this man, but he did it in two stages. And, and we think, well, why? Why did he do it in two stages? Um, was it that opening the eyes of the blind was really difficult for Jesus and so he needed to do it in two stages? No. Uh, was it that he couldn't do it the first time so he thought he'd give it another crack? No. Why then? Why would he do it in two stages? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he open his eyes in two stages? Well, it corresponds to the two stages with which the disciples' eyes are opened in this passage. It's sort of like a parable, but worked out in real life. Jesus really did heal this blind man in two stages. And then we see how he really did open the disciples' eyes to see who he is and what he was coming to do uh, in two stages as well. So we get a greater insight into what was going on with the disciples. So we see what happens with the blind man. Uh, Jesus heals him in two stages. There's that first one. He can see people, but they look like trees. The second one, he can see everything clearly and now we're going to see how that corresponds with the disciples. Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. People can't pin him down. They don't know who he is. They think, well, he's doing things that only uh, someone from God could do. Um, he's doing even more amazing things than that. He's teaching authoritatively, who could this be? And so people are thinking, uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe a, another prophet. And then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Peter, he uh, often speaks as the kind of representative for the, the disciples. Um, he says these words, you are the Christ. And, and that's what we've been building to this whole time in Mark's gospel looking towards this, someone's finally got it. Someone's finally understood who Jesus is. The Christ is the promised king. God in, in the Old Testament had given many promises of how he was going to come and he was going to be that savior, that savior promised king to rescue his people. And there's promise after promise after promise in the Bible. And here he is right there in front of them. And Peter has recognized that Jesus is the Christ, that promised king. And Jesus, again, uh, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It's not yet time for that message to go out back then. Um, and so you can imagine what Peter's thinking and the disciples. This is fantastic. 
The Christ is here, the promised king. You know, the guy who's going to come in all guns blazing and destroy the Romans and establish rule in Jerusalem. And we're going to have a great time, aren't we? Because he's going to destroy all of our enemies. We're going to set up shop in Jerusalem, uh, kick out the Romans, forget the tax collectors, all of the people. Uh, The Romans aren't going to be oppressing us. We're going to be ruling. And the king is our best friend. And uh, we are excited about this. You can imagine them thinking of a warrior king, a mighty king, the kind of king who we kind of thought of earlier, someone who has lots of servants and rules and has lots of uh, might and power and wealth. Bring on the conquering king, they think. They understand that Jesus is that king, but their understanding of what that means doesn't stack up with Jesus' description. It's kind of like the guy who's blind, but then could see trees well, see people that looked like trees walking around. They could see that Jesus is that promised king. That had been revealed to them. But they didn't understand what that yet meant. So imagine their surprise when Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Be killed? Suffer many things? No, 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 no. This is, this is not going to happen to you. Peter, Peter takes Jesus aside. Um, and uh, ever the bold man that he was began to rebuke Jesus, the one he's just identified as the king of the entire world <laughs> for all time. Um, Peter rebuking Jesus. He didn't like the idea of the suffering king. He just couldn't make that fit with his thinking. He thought, no, 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 a king is someone who rules, who has power, who suffering, no way. Uh, this will never happen to you. And you notice how Jesus replies with very stern words, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter rebuked Jesus, but then Jesus rebukes Peter. Uh, Jesus hadn't spoken out of turn, but Peter had. Jesus calls Peter Satan because Peter was trying to take Jesus away from his mission of going to the cross. And um, if you remember, uh, we didn't see it as much in Mark. We did see Satan tempt Jesus in the wilderness. But in the longer accounts in Luke and in Matthew, you can see how Satan tried to divert Jesus from going to the cross. He took him up to the high place and said, I can give you all of this, um, and you just bow down and worship me. Satan wanted to stop Jesus going to the cross, and Peter too wanted to stop Jesus going to the cross. He called him not to go there. And you notice there, it says in here, um, where am I? In verse 32, there we go. And he said this plainly, so that was Jesus talking about him suffering and dying. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Do you notice how he takes him aside? Jesus is set going to the cross. And there's a physical aspect to which uh, Peter takes Jesus aside from his mission. And then he does with his words as well, calls him not to go. So Peter is both physically and mentally trying to get Jesus away from the cross. And in doing so, is literally being the devil's advocate. 
And we also get an insight into what was Peter's concern here. Jesus says these words, For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had an earthly understanding of what rule and power and authority and establishing a kingdom looked like. That sort of thing, might, power, getting rid of the Romans and Caesar and ruling. He didn't have in mind the things of God, the suffering Christ, who is victorious, but not in the way we usually think about victory. The one who's victorious through death, dying and rising again. Jesus, by coming and and living on this earth, he humbles himself extraordinarily. We were singing about that just earlier in Hark the Herald Angels Sing about how God incarnate has come to this earth. It's mind-blowing to think that Jesus went to the cross to die. He he says it plainly here. He tells the the disciples that the Son of Man, that is uh, one of his titles, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. From, from their perspective, and I think often from our own perspective, that doesn't sound like victory. That sounds like defeat. Uh, to, to be uh, suffering, to, to be rejected, uh, and to be, to be murdered. That, that sounds like losing rather than winning. But the amazing thing is that it's through this that Jesus is truly victorious. Not, not victorious over a small portion of the earth for a little bit of time, not victorious over some small enemies, but victorious over the biggest enemies ever of sin, death, and Satan, and victorious for all time, now and forever. Jesus has defeated way bigger enemies than Peter and the disciples had in mind, and he's established a way bigger rule than just that in Jerusalem for a, for a short period of time. Jesus has established eternal rule of the universe forever. Jesus never backtracks. He is the Christ. And that means he will suffer and die and rise. Even resistance from those closest to him would not set him off course. He came to do his father's will. And he submits to his father every single time. It's fascinating the direction that this then takes. Jesus tells them, that if anyone wants to follow him, the crucified Christ, they too need to carry their cross. The disciples had a two-stage opening of their eyes. Can you see that? So just like the blind man, uh, they, they, they could see that Jesus is the Christ. They could see that, uh, no, he's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist. No, he is the promised king. This is the king that we've all been waiting for. He's here. We know he's him. And that's right. In, um, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is, this is revelation from God. God has opened their eyes to see that Jesus is this promised king. But he hadn't yet opened their eyes to see what that meant or, or his mission, how he was going to be that king, how he was going to uh, be victorious. And the way in which he does that is through the, the death and resurrection, uh, coming and dying on a cross, rising again powerfully from the, from the dead. And so when they see the second part, that corresponds with the blind man seeing everything clearly. 
having true sight, again, having God open their eyes to see that we're not following uh, the kind of king that we perhaps thought we were, but we're following the kind of king who's victorious by dying and rising, just as it was promised in the Old Testament that the king who would rule forever wouldn't be a king who avoided death, but would be the king who passed through it. And then Jesus calls them and us to follow him. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, if you haven't seen these videos, you should go look them up. There, there, there's a thing called Two Ways to Live, which is a really helpful gospel explanation. And online, uh, you can see these videos. I don't know, are they from the mid-90s or so? Uh, I think, yeah, Kelcher's nodding. Um, and, and they're fantastic. There's, there's ones where they're like, uh, there's a guy and he's trying to witness to his friend. And basically, he's really struggling. And then they have a better conversation later where he's had a bit of help as to how he can put his ideas in a more coherent fashion. Um, but the first video is just gold. And you can just imagine these guys having a lot of fun together as they filmed it. In that first one, um, the, the, the one guy says, to, the Christian guy says to his friend, oh yeah, I, and then you, you follow Jesus. And then the other guy, the non-Christian guy in the video says, follow him where? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so follow him where? Um, and that's a good question. Where do you follow Jesus? Well, you follow him in the way of the cross. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said when Jesus bids someone follow him, he bids them come and die. Uh, Jesus says these words um, from 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those are striking words, aren't they? Deny ourselves. So instead of living life as to what do I want? How can I get whatever I want? How can I be satisfied fully in my life and, and, and enjoy it and whatever? It's no deny yourself is where Jesus starts with this. To say no to our own desires and thoughts that, that are not of God. And take up his cross. That's to die, isn't it? To follow Jesus in the way of the cross. And you think about what Jesus did on the cross. He took upon himself the sins of humanity. Uh, and he did that to pay the penalty to God for the, the sin that we'd committed and thereby reconcile us to the Father, which is awesome. That's the gospel. That's the amazing message that we put our trust in, this Jesus who has done this. Us carrying our cross isn't, isn't the thing, uh, isn't, isn't us bearing the sins of humanity to reconcile people to God. But we follow Jesus who, in going to the cross, uh, set aside his own uh, I guess his his own rights, um, and 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 he he died for the benefit of others. You see how he he didn't insist upon things uh, happening uh, in a way that would just benefit him, but he acted in the benefit of others. You see how he 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 leaves heaven, the perfect place where he's always been in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He comes to this earth where he suffers many many things. He's rejected and then he's killed and he does that to obey his father and to save people. He does it to save others. So Jesus doesn't just go to the cross um, in some kind of like abstract sense that means nothing. He does it for the benefit of others. You see how his love is shown in doing that. He, he goes and he dies to save others. 
And so when we follow Jesus and he calls us to take up our cross, he's calling us to die to our, our sinful selves, to, 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 to also lay aside our self-interest and act in the interest of others uh, and, and to, to, to risk our lives doing that and to follow Jesus. So when he says, follow me, he's calling us to follow him in the way of the cross. So when we think about uh, what it looks like to follow Jesus and we're confronted with challenges in this life, we shouldn't be surprised. We're following the king who was crucified. We're following the one who went to the cross to save us. And he calls us to go the same way that he did, uh, laying down our lives for the benefit of others. Jesus says these words elsewhere, greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he calls us to as well. For whoever would save his life or his soul will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If we think about our lives, it can be very easy to live with a kind of like here and now orientation, can't it? Where we think it's all about self-preservation. I'll do whatever I can to not die or um, to have a good life or or enjoy myself. Jesus is calling us to the opposite of that, to losing our lives, not, not pointlessly or aimlessly, but losing our lives for his sake and the gospels. Because in losing our life for Jesus, we truly find life. Whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And notice he, he, he adds the gospel's sake as well. I remember the gospel is that massive news that he's been preaching, that Jesus is the king, that he's the king come to save. So when you tell people about Jesus and his love for them and the salvation that only he offers, and they revile you and utter all kinds of false evil against you on the count of Jesus... Know that your reward is great in heaven. That's what Jesus says in Matthew. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Verse 36. Nothing. Uh, They once asked uh, John D. Rockefeller, if you don't know who he is, think like mega rich and then maybe times that by 100. Um, What would it take for him to have enough? How much would be enough? You know, like he's, he's got money coming out of his ears. Um, and how much money do you need for it to be enough? And he said, just a little bit more. And isn't that really telling? We think, well, you can have everything in this world, everything in this life, and yet have nothing. You could have all of the cars, all of the houses, all of the fancy trips, a jet plane, a helicopter, you name it. You can have it, a fancy yacht. Um, and if you have all of that stuff, but lose your, you lose uh, your, your soul, you forfeit your soul, it's all worthless, isn't it? It won't last. We're all going to die one day. And, um, and then we're, we're, we're not going to have any of that stuff. But we have the opportunity to have an eternity with Jesus that lasts forever. So don't forfeit your soul don't go after what the world offers. The world's so enticing, isn't it? It's, it, it can be difficult um, to say no. But then we remember that Jesus has called us to deny ourselves, hasn't he? He's called us to take up our cross, to follow him, to not seek 
this stuff in this life, but in the life to come. Jesus says, for what can a man give in return for his soul? When we die and we stand before God and give an account of our lives, we can't say, here, have my yacht and my you know, fancy cars and all of that stuff in, in exchange for, for eternal life. It doesn't work like that. There's only one way to living eternally in glory and, and not under condemnation, and that's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who came to die for us. We can't give anything to earn our way or to buy our way into heaven. The only way we can be right with God is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. Because there's a, there's a brokenness in our relationship with God by nature. Uh, we're all uh, people who, who often go after our own desires rather than going after the things of God. And, and so we need to be reconciled to God. There's a brokenness in that relationship by nature. And the only way that that can be restored is through Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Jesus says this in 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those are, those are stern words, aren't they? Uh, words well worth pondering, like each of these statements that Jesus has made. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... It's not only uh, just Jesus here, but he lists his words as well. Um, it's not possible for us to say, well, we like Jesus, we just don't like what he said. Um, no, Jesus is, is saying, if you're ashamed of me and of my words, I'll be ashamed of you. And that's not somewhere we want to be. You think when, when God uh, comes to judge the world in righteousness and in truth, by his judge, the Lord Jesus, we don't want Jesus to be ashamed of us. We, we, we definitely don't want that. And so the alternative is to not be ashamed of Jesus and of his words. And um, we can pray that God by his spirit would enable us to do that. Um, I think of Paul um, in, in one of his letters later, I think it's in Romans, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. And that's so true, isn't it? When you really think about it and you go, well, it can be a bit awkward when you're having conversations with people and they're not really interested or maybe they're not picking up what you're putting down or they're putting up walls and you think, man, this is pretty difficult and pretty awkward or whatever. Um, it can be, it's, uh, Satan tempts us to, to be ashamed of Jesus and of his words. But we must never go there. Rather, we need to look to Jesus, the one who saved us, and be absolutely in awe of who he is. You see, we know who Jesus is. We know that he loves us. We know that he loves the person that we're witnessing to. And we have no need to be ashamed of him ever. How could we be ashamed of the one who came down to take our shame on the cross? Jesus is coming back. Um, he says here, when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, I don't think that that means that there are some people uh, still standing around in uh, Israel who didn't die for like the past 2,000 years. Um, yeah, I don't think that's true. Uh, what I think Jesus is saying here is that 
when the kingdom of God came with power was Jesus' death and his resurrection. When you think about, we, someone mentioned earlier, um, a crown, that a king wears a crown. Do you know when Jesus was crowned? On the cross. He was given a crown of thorns. He is the king who goes to the cross for us. The cross is a glorious symbol. I mean, for, yeah, which, which is a scandalous thing when you think about it. It's a, it's a torture method that people used for killing people, for shaming people, humiliating them. But this is a glorious thing when Jesus goes to the cross because here he is crowned and he rules. You see, on the cross, it looks to the world like Jesus is being defeated, doesn't it? It looks like this is the end. Your king is dead and and this is all over. But that's not the case because on the cross, Jesus is defeating sin and death and the devil. And it's awesome, the power that he has. He could have come down from the cross. He's all powerful. He could do whatever he wants. But he stayed there. He submitted to his father's will. He is perfect in every way. And he loves us. And you think, wow, that's the king that we serve, the king who died on a cross. And then he rose again three days later. Jesus says in John's gospel, I lay down my life of my own accord and I take it up again of my own accord. Jesus rose himself from the dead. How awesome is that? The kingdom of God has come with power. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And the people there, the disciples, saw this. You just think how, how that, those, those three years going from being a fisherman or a tax collector, being called by Jesus to follow him, going along with him for a few years, realizing that you've, you're following the Christ, which is awesome, uh, and then realizing that he's on his way to die, following him along that path. Then he dies. Then he raises himself to life again. And then he teaches more. And then he ascends to heaven. And you just think, wow, what a three years that was for those guys there. How awesome is it that, that our God came to this earth and he came and he lived that perfect life, that he died on a cross and that he rose powerfully from the dead. And that in doing this, he's established his kingdom. And so now we live uh, knowing that Jesus is the ruler of, of, of everything. And we live in great anticipation of when he's coming back. And, um, and when we will be with him again uh, in person forever, face to face. And so if you're thinking about this passage and thinking about, okay, the blind man, Jesus heals him with that two stages. There's the, there's the seeing somewhat, and then there's the seeing clearly. And then the disciples, they see somewhat. They get that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the king. And then they get what, what that really means, that he's come to suffer and die and rise. And then they get what that means for them, which is that they too are to follow him in the suffering and the dying but also in the rising. Isn't that beautiful? You think about that. Jesus calls us to suffer and die too, to, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and, and, and to follow him. Jesus, who has risen from the dead, has secured a resurrection for all of his followers. If, uh, if you're feeling uh, downtrodden or sad, or maybe uh, there are things uh, that have been going badly at the moment in your life, or maybe things are going okay, but you're just not feeling great, what an awesome comfort that is to know 
that Jesus, who has gone this path, has secured our future for us. And if, if you're ever feeling like, oh, well, how, how secure is my salvation? Well, look to Jesus. He has died for your sins and he has risen from the dead. And you think, that's a, that's a fact. Look into the evidence. Uh, you can see that Jesus really did rise from the dead. You look in, and you see um, that he really was alive. He really was dead. The Romans didn't mess that stuff up. They really did kill him. And then he really was alive again. And the only way to explain that is that he really did raise himself from the dead. And, and then you look at the disciples uh, who then went on to share that message non-violently to their own uh deaths um, because they they knew it to be true and you look at that and you go wow if I'm concerned about um, whether Jesus is the real deal you look at the fact that he really did rise from the dead and you see that's the future that he's promised for all of us as well right now it's possible to experience that spiritual resurrection um, being taken from death to life in the Lord Jesus and um, some of the songs we were singing picked up on that as well, that second birth idea. Uh, and we all need that. We all need that to be, to be raised from the dead um, spiritually. Because when we think about our relationship with God, naturally it's broken, but in Jesus it can be restored. And we each need that. It's not something that we can just have by association, like I hang around with a lot of people who have that. No, we each need to have that second birth. And so if you haven't had that, then I want to think deeply about Jesus. Uh, this, is, this is the most important thing that, that we, we can ever have, the most amazing gift we'll ever receive. Uh, so come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple, really. Uh, we just need Jesus to open our eyes like he did for the disciples and give us that trust in him and we follow him, knowing that it's not going to be easy now but we've promised glory forever with him. Please join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you opened the blind man's eyes in two stages. Thank you that you opened the disciples' eyes in those stages as well. And thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to see that you indeed are the king, the promised king, the king who suffers, the king who dies, the king who rises, and that you call us to, to follow you, Lord. Grant that we would lay aside all of the things that hold us back and follow you in denying ourselves, uh, taking up our cross and following you, Lord. Grant that we would be able to do that by your spirit. Lord, grant that we would never be ashamed of you and of your words. Uh, convict us, Lord, in our hearts of the truth of the amazing gospel message of, your, of the salvation found only in you. And Lord, because of that, grant that we would never be ashamed. Uh, Lord, grant that we wouldn't be caught up in trying to accumulate wealth and things here and now, but rather living for, for heaven and, and the treasure in heaven that we can accumulate uh, for there. Lord, give us an eternal mindset where we look to uh, the, the reality that your kingdom has come in power and that you are coming again, Lord Jesus. Uh, grant us the ability to uh, live lives that glorify you out of thankfulness uh, for what you've done for us. We, we just want to thank you, Jesus. Uh, it's just awesome that you went to the cross for us. 
that you came down from heaven to become one of us, that you lived the perfect life we could never live and that you died in our place and that you rose yourself from the dead and that that is true, uh, that you have given us this hope that for all of us who are in you, united to you, we too have that hope of resurrection. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you and we glorify your name. Amen.